San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 19, Episode 4, Capital Punishment and the U.S. Supreme Court. In conversation with Bernard Harcourt, Professor of Law and Political Science at Columbia University. Our guest today is the Isidore and Seville Sulzbacher Professor of Law and Political Science at Columbia University. He's a distinguished critical theorist, legal advocate, and prolific writer and editor. His scholarship in his books focuses on punishment practices, political economy, critical theory and praxis, as well as political protest. He's also the founding director of the Institute for a Just Society at the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thought. He's the author of more than a dozen books. His forthcoming book, Cooperation, a Political, Economic, and Social Theory, offers a blueprint for a society based on cooperation. He joins us from his office in New York. Welcome to the show, Bernard. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure. Bernard, before we launch into our discussion about capital punishment in the Supreme Court, please tell us about your new book. Oh, thanks. Thanks. It's, it's a new book. It's coming out uh, in April, and it's called Cooperation. And what I try to do there is map out a different way of thinking about politics, social relations, and economics. And basically, the argument is that we're at a unique time in history, in human history, where we've become extraordinarily interdependent, primarily because of the global climate crisis, and that our usual tools aren't working. Most of those tools depend on electoral politics, trying to get people to agree on a, on a way to deal with these problems. And, and it, they're pushing us in two radically different directions, one much more, much more libertarian uh, direction and the other a much more kind of administrative governmental direction. But both of those require that we have at least a, a majority of people on board and all of the different branches of government on board. Otherwise, you get the you know you get the Supreme Court knocking out the EPA regulations, etc. Mm -hmm. And it, it just doesn't seem to be working. And so the idea here is that there's a there's a different path, which is people working together uh, at more of a bottom up level, uh, working together through forms of cooperation, through uh, worker cooperatives and other mutual organizations mutuals and insurance mutuals, credit unions and such, and through their own work and collaboration and through the principles of cooperatives, which are importantly in favor of sustainable growth and the environment, working together to solve some of these problems. And so I try to sketch out in the book both a, a political theory. I mean, I think there, there have long been arguments for this kind of approach more cooperationist approach, mm -hmm. but they've been, I think they, they're, they're kind of like 19th century arguments. Some of them are Darwinian about how 
you know, we are inherently cooperative. And I think we just need to set aside a lot of the 19th century background. Just think about the only way to address these problems today, which are, which is through what I would argue forms of cooperation and solidarity and respect for the environment. So I try to set out there an economic theory and also a social theory because it has implications for how we deal with each other and how we deal with conflict and, and how we deal with usually punishment. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to develop a paradigm of cooperation to replace, in a way, uh, the paradigm of punishment that kind of governs today. Mm-hmm. So that's the broad sketch. Somewhat ambitious, but I think we need to be ambitious in these days when we're facing such crises. I'm very excited about that, actually, and I'm looking forward to reviewing that book with you when it's published in April. So Thanks. hopefully we'll, we'll have you back in April or May to discuss the That'd book. That would be great. Thanks. Well, Bernard, the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, among other enumerations, refers to cruel and unusual punishment. While most liberal Western democracies have abolished capital punishment, the United States continues to permit the practice. The 1972 Supreme Court case, Furman versus Georgia, addressed the issue. Please tell us about that specific decision. Well, that was an important decision in 1972. It was a very fractured decision. Most of the justices wrote their own opinions. But basically what they, what they held was that the way that the death penalty was being administered in the United States was unconstitutional because and then, of course, the, the because was very fractured. Mm-hmm. Some justices said it was because it was being arbitrarily applied, like lightning. Uh, some justices uh, argued that it was being raci- applied in a racially discriminatory manner. Some justices thought there's no real justification or theory of just punishment that would justify uh, executing people. It's, it, was, it, it has been for since then the, the longest written opinion, opinions, because there were so many different opinions written uh, in that case by the justices uh, in, the, in the law books, in the Supreme Court uh, law books. Uh, so, and when it came down, many people thought that it had struck down the death penalty mm-hmm. entirely across the board. Right. But it still wasn't clear because of the because of the fractured messages, whether it meant that the death penalty, as it was being applied at the time in the 19 basically in the 1960s, because there had been essentially moratoria in place until the decision was resolved, whether whether it was just the way that it was being applied that was unconstitutional Mm -hmm. or whether there was something just unconstitutional about the death penalty itself. A lot of people didn't know what was going to happen next and and what the court had held. But you have to understand at the time, there were relatively few death sentences that were being meted out. And so it did feel arbitrary. It did feel a little bit like a lightning strike. Mm -hmm. And also, there was extraordinary discretion given to jurors uh, at the time. So the jury instructions at the time basically told a jury anywhere that, where there was a death penalty that they had absolute discretion to decide whether to impose the death penalty. It was based on their moral conscience mm-hmm. that they should look inward and it wasn't the law that was telling them. And so it was a system that had in a way kind of fractured and, and the result was that decision in 72, Furman, that 
that essentially, it seemed, abolished the death penalty. Mm -hmm. But since 1976, 35 states have enacted capital punishment laws, and yet the issue continues to be challenged in the courts. So, Bernard, tell us about the stance of the current Supreme Court with respect to capital punishment. Just to continue the history before I get exactly to the current court, there was another seminal decision in 1976 that, as as you indicated, many states adopted new death penalty statutes. A lot of people thought, well, they were unconstitutional because of Furman from 72. Ultimately, it goes back to the United States Supreme Court in 1976 in Gregg v. Georgia. The court says, well, what we meant in Furman was that the way it was being applied was unconstitutional. And that some of these new statutes, not all of them, but some of them uh, have created a process that could be constitutional. And so since that time, people have been challenging the death penalty in various states in this country. And of course, what we have now is a very different situation where the Supreme Court, which has ebbed and flowed over time with regard to the death penalty, uh, the current Supreme Court has become a super majority mm-hmm. of the current Supreme Court has become uh, extremely pro death penalty, mm. essentially, mm-hmm. in the sense that and, and the way in which it manifests today, which is particularly interesting because it's very controversial. It's what's called the shadow docket of the United States Supreme Court, is that the court is essentially intervening in many death penalty cases uh, in a very kind of closed door behind the kind of behind the curtain way, Mm -hmm. which is to lift stays of execution. Now, I know this gets a little technical and a little complicated, but essentially when someone is going to be executed, there's always a lot of litigation to stay the execution, to enjoin it, to, to stop it, essentially. And that litigation happens usually end of the litigation is always in federal court. Mm -hmm. And there have been just, and so most recently over the, you know, the past few uh, years and the most recent executions, there have often been federal district courts and federal circuit courts. So the district court is the trial level. It's the bottom level federal district court, federal district court. And then, and then the appellate court is in the circuit court. Uh, not you're in, you're in California. It's the ninth circuit. I'm in New York. It's the second circuit, but the circuit courts, which are the court of appeals have been imposing stays, meaning basically they've been saying, okay, wait, you, you stay, you, you can't yet execute this person because we have to resolve an important legal issue. Mm-hmm. And that gets then essentially appealed to the United States Supreme Court. And most recently, the Supreme Court over the past few years has basically been um, overturning those stays and uh, effectively allowing the executions, even though a number of federal judges, distinguished federal judges, appellate federal judges, have indicated that there are you know legal issues that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And that's been happening so frequently recently. Um, that it almost feels as if, in a way, the the Supreme Court has become uh, almost the nation's executioner, because Hmm. so often these cases are being stayed by federal courts, uh, but then the Supreme Court is stepping in and saying, no, 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 just execute this person. Hmm. We've seen it very recently. I mean, one of the you know, there were there were many federal executions at the end of President Trump's 
mandate. They were, it was actually, they were uh, just an unprecedented number of executions. Um, One of them, for instance, was a a woman by the name of Lisa Montgomery, and this was in January of uh, 2021, January 12th, 2021, so during the lame duck period. Essentially, there were three separate circuit courts uh, that that's and the federal courts underneath them that had stayed the execution. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were because there was it was a it was a federal death penalty case. These are more rare than the state death penalty cases, but it means that it's the federal government that's actually doing the conviction, sentencing to death, and then doing the execution. There was litigation against the Federal Bureau of Prisons in the D.C. Circuit, which is considered the most august of the circuits mm-hmm. uh, the dc circuit and they the dc circuit on banc had had granted a stay for just to to have a just to have the time to kind of have a briefing schedule on an important question about the federal bureau of prisons and the scheduling of executions and the eighth circuit had granted a stay as well stayed the execution uh, for other reasons, so that there was a court in the Seventh Circuit that had, and essentially that had also granted a stay because there was a litigation in multiple states and federal courts, of course, from multiple jurisdictions. And essentially, the you know the United States Supreme Court stepped in, lifted the stays, and she was executed that night. Hmm. And we, we've seen the same thing happen uh, most recently. Uh, I, I try. Cases mostly, or I'm involved mostly in death penalty cases in Alabama, but the the three of the executions or attempted executions, because recently in Alabama people have been surviving executions, which is a whole other matter. But surviving I, surviving it, executions? Yes, yes, but it's, it's hard to wrap one's mind around what it must be like to be strapped to the gurney for hours while someone is trying to find a vein for lethal injection and they're unable to mm-hmm. and the execution is stopped is halted and that's happened three three times in the last uh, few years when my client and friend doily hand this happened to him the first time back in 2018 and he uh I, this is I'm, I'm going off on a tangent mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll come back to this yes. i'll come back to the stays and just tell you a little bit about doyle doyle mm-hmm. ham's case he was he was 61 years old when they tried to execute him. He had cancer. He'd been fighting lymphoma and he, uh, and his, and his veins were shot. Um, mm-hmm. I had been litigating this for seven months, trying to tell the federal courts, the Alabama Supreme Court, state courts, the governor, that they weren't going to be able to find a vein. Uh, my doctor, who's an, one of the best anesthesiologists, Mark Heath, uh, actually at, at Columbia, at Columbia, the hospital here, in New York, had examined him, and he was clear they're just not going to be able to find a veins. His veins were, were pretty shot in the arms and the legs and whatnot. And so, but ultimately, that went to execution on February 22nd, 2018, and he was, was strapped to the gurney for two and a half hours while they pricked and prodded him in his legs. And it's just horrible, horrible to just mm. torture uh, in his groin, etc. And finally, they gave up because they couldn't find Living. So he 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 stumbled off the lethal injection gurney, and and that has happened two other times in the past six months. If, uh, if ever there, as a layman, as a layperson, yes. the term "cruel and unusual punishment," if ever there were a definition of cruel and unusual punishment, it's what you've just explained yes. to us and described it's, to us. 
it's unimaginable. It's it's hard to imagine that we would allow that to happen in this in this country. I had I had I had warned them. I had we had litigated. I had litigated the case through federal district court, circuit court, but um, to no avail. The two recent executions, and this is and this takes us back to the stays of executions, the way in which the 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 Supreme Court is now kind of so actively involved in in making these executions go forward. Mm-hmm. Two of the last two of the last ones in Alabama, uh, Ken Ken Smith. Uh, November seventeenth, two thousand twenty-two. So just a few months ago, and and Eugene Miller, September twenty-two, uh, two thousand twenty-two. Again, last summer. In those cases, the eleventh, in in Ken Smith's, the eleventh circuit had granted a stay of execution because of these questions of the execute execution protocol and the fact mm-hmm. that there had been two botched executions. The eleventh circuit had granted a stay. Said we need to hear more about this, right? And midnight. In nine o'clock at night, you know, the, the, United, the United States Supreme Court lifts the stay. They go to execution. He survives. Eugene Miller, same thing. Hmm. The Middle District of Alabama had granted a preliminary injunction uh, because of the questions of whether he he was really eligible for a lethal injection or not, or whether he had signed this other alternative, which is now we Alabama's adopted a gas execution method. Or, anyway, the district court grants a preliminary injunction says you can't execute him. We need to understand these legal issues. The 11th Circuit upholds the stay of execution, says, no, we need more time to examine these legal issues. The Supreme Court lifts the stay and says, no, go ahead and execute him. Hmm. And, and there again, he survived. And these are, you know, these these cases, it happened to Matthew Reeves, January 27, 2022. Again, the Supreme Court has begun kind of lifting these these stays, and you have to understand that it's not done with the full kind of argumentation and deliberation mm-hmm. that you get at the United States Supreme Court. We're used to seeing them in their ordinary cases, the ones that they grant certiorari in, and they hear oral argument, and so they receive briefing, they hear oral argument, they go into conference, they have big debates, they write long opinions, it takes them six months, June, July comes around the Mm -hmm. end of June, and we hear about all the decisions that are coming out. These are, you know, that's what we think of when we think of the United States Supreme Court, a deliberative body that Mm -hmm. does all this work and reasoning and writing and deliberation. These, These lifting of the stays happen within an hour or two of the pleadings being filed at the United States Supreme Court. You know, there are other federal judges that have said, look, this is these raises important issues. We need some time to think about it on complicated issues. I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, of another case from Alabama. This was from 2019, which had had to do with whether or not the inmate was allowed to have an imam, his imam. So he was Muslim. Oh, yes. His, his minister, spiritual guide was an imam. And the law provided that if you have a, a a priest or you know if you're a Christian prisoner, you would get the chaplain to be with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does, didn't allow for a Muslim prisoner to have an imam accompany mm-hmm. them at, at those final moments of execution. Com- I think you know those ra- these raise complicated issues Absolutely. That, that raise important religion, freedom of religion, and, and other issues. You know, and Dominique Hakim Marcel Ray's case, 2019. The, uh, the 11th Circuit had granted a stay to hear this, and that night the United States Supreme Court vacates the stay and, uh, and he gets executed.
you know? So if there's this way in which it's, it happens, it almost feels as if it's happening in the midnight hour, uh, behind closed doors, without argumentation, without really without even time for full and good briefing, but certainly without oral argument, without deliberation, without them talking to each other and coming to decisions about this. And so it's um, increasingly uh, feeling as if the Supreme Court is really stepping in to, 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 to make sure that these executions are actually happening. And I think that's changed the whole character of the death penalty and, and questions of cruel and unusual punishment today. In, in addition to the Supreme Court ruling at the 11th hour for these executions to go ahead, does the Supreme Court recently, or uh, in its current docket, does it have any capital punishment cases in its docket where the broader issue of the the procedures for capital punishment are under consideration, as opposed to these 11th hour, very quick decisions. Uh, is there right. is there an opportunity for uh, for a case which is going to allow for more deliberation so we'd be able to see how the the nine justices are going to vote on the broader issue of capital punishment? Yes. So, I mean, that's a terrific question. It's, you know, they, they grant cert in which means uh, they grant review. They, they, they It's a discretionary process. They grant cert in very few cases, mm-hmm. um, and the numbers have been declining over the years, which is very astonishing. So um, a couple of decades ago, they had about 120 cases, and then it was down in the hundreds and got down in the 80s, and they're, they're reaching the 50s mm. soon. So the number of cases that they're taking are getting more limited, and they usually only take cases when there is something special about the case, meaning usually if there's a circuit split, so if the Mm-hmm. Different federal circuits have different l- legal rules on the same issue that are of a constitutional or federal dimension. They might take that. Or if it's really a big issue that has such great importance for yes. the nation. So, for instance, you know, the Dobbs decision reversing mm-hmm. Roe versus Wade. They do, of course, take death penalty cases, but it's difficult to tee up the important issues that are arising in these executions in such a way to create the more deliberate process of review. Of course, in any of these cases where they are lifting the stay, they could instead grant certiorari and review the question. So, for instance, on this matter of um, the, you know, cruel and unusual nature of surviving the execution, mm-hmm. right? Um, in, in any of those, in the third case, say, that was raising these issues, they could have granted certain and had that long deliberate process. But instead, they're reversing the stay. Uh, now, they they do uh, grant cert in some death penalty cases to address uh, sometimes some habeas corpus issues, but it feels as if they're missing the opportunity to address what are the hottest and most contemporary and problematic issues mm-hmm. uh, because they're just lifting the stays rather than granting cert. One definitely feels this more and more with the greater supermajority that there is now of uh, generally three justices in the, in the minority on many of these stays. I mean, in most of these stays, you generally have Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan, uh, now Justice Jackson in the in the minority, uh, objecting. But you generally are having six strong votes 
to lift this day. Mm -hmm. Let me let me pose a question to you. Of course, the Supreme Court, the Supreme, the nine Supreme Court justices are an unelected body. They're appointed for life. They are not. Again, they're not beholden to public opinion. Where does public opinion currently stand with regard to support for the death penalty or support for the abolition of the death penalty? Where do the numbers fall out? Yeah, that's an interesting question. The popularity of the death penalty has been decreasing mm -hmm. relatively consistently since highs uh, earlier. We've almost reached a stage where and I would say maybe about a, a year ago, we almost reached a stage where on, a, on the raw question, are you in favor of opposed to the death penalty, uh, the country was split. Mm. Now, you have to understand that, of course, opinion polling is an art, but it's also a tricky thing. When you ask the question, are you in favor of the death penalty alone, support is much higher than when you ask on these surveys whether you're in favor of the death penalty if the option is life imprisonment without parole. Mm -hmm. Now, life imprisonment without parole has its own set of problems, which are extremely <laughs> problematic. And we can talk about that on, an, on another podcast. I mean, I think life without parole denies the individual a, a, a right to hope mm -hmm. that other European countries and other international in international law, there's this notion of a right to hope that is really vitiated by this idea of life imprisonment without parole. So uh, there are problems with life imprisonment without parole, but, but, but if you ask the questions differently, actually a, a strong majority and super majority of Americans are opposed to the death penalty. Again, polling is, is an art form, but uh, support for the death penalty has tended to be on the decline in this country. And, and the states that have the death penalty has also consistently be dec been declining over the last few months, uh, years, excuse me, with states like uh, Colorado uh, getting rid of the death penalty. And we've seen in New Mexico. And so we've seen every year a state or two eliminate the death penalty. So mm -hmm. the number of states that have become abolitionist is increasing uh, with time. And, it, and, and if you look at all of the statistics, including also a sharp drop in the number of people who actually have been sentenced to death uh, across the country, a sharp drop in the number of people who are being executed, a drop in the number of states that have the death penalty, the drop in public opinion. I mean, if you look at all of those trends, mm -hmm. people, people believed, or, you know, lawyers and scholars believed that the Supreme Court might be headed, might have been headed towards a position where it might have started to reconsider the constitutionality of the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And Justice Breyer had actually written an opinion a couple of years ago where he had indicated that he thought that the Supreme Court should reconsider uh, the death penalty. This was, this was all before uh, the uh, three appointments uh, by President Trump yes. uh, to the United States Supreme Court. And so the winds have shifted dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, I mean, I think that's reflected in the lifting of the stays, um, but it's reflected in the fact that um, it's, it's, it's relatively unimaginable at this point to think that the United States Supreme Court, uh, the majority of the court, would reconsider and uh, strike down uh, the death penalty as unconstitutional. Although I'd say in 2016, before the elections, uh, it seemed as if when you look at all of those trends, possibly a different uh, presidential outcome 
that there might have been uh, a greater probability, a hope, a possibility that the court might one day determine that the death penalty is unconstitutional. Here in California, of course, we do have the death penalty, but yeah. under Governor right. Newsom, we have a moratorium right. in place. So, uh, since, Correct. Since he's been governor for five-plus years now, we've had a, mor- a moratorium on capital punishment, so there have been no executions in California. Right. And there haven't been that many executions in California, in part also because California has been outstanding in terms of providing skilled defense uh, attorneys uh, and appellate attorneys uh, on these cases in a way that uh, in many jurisdictions uh, you just don't see. You know, the death penalty is, is uh, the death penalty is really reserved for the poor. There's also a, a sharp racial mm-hmm. uh, discrimination that you see with the death penalty. Um, the poverty and, and the race and the, and and issues of mental health mm-hmm. often play out strongly through the quality of representation, meaning that good attorneys who can uh, properly litigate these cases and work on, on mitigation and finding out about the, the individual presenting that kind of evidence, raising legal claims and whatnot, can do a, a very good job in trying to prevent some of the more gross injustices that happen in these cases. And as a result, you know, California has a, compared to other states, uh, I practice predominantly, my death penalty practice has always been in the state of Alabama, mm-hmm. where, you know, there aren't public defenders, uh, trained public defenders, there isn't a state capital defender. Mm. Um, uh, cases are assigned to local attorneys many times who don't have the proper uh, training mm-hmm. and uh, background when I when I started working on these cases and still today there are compensation limits on how much can how much an attorney can uh, be compensated in a death penalty case believe it or not when I started this work uh, it was comp capped at $1000 so you could you could that was all the amount of money you could what? make in a death penalty case yes $1000 yes. Yes, yes. In the 1990s, when I was doing this work, it was capped at thousand dollars. The big change that they made was to give one thousand to, to multiply by two by saying that there's a guilt phase and a penalty phase. Mm-hmm. So you, you get two thousand dollars. But it, it, it was it, it, and it continues to be like that in many of the jurisdictions that use the death penalty. So with such a proclivity, so that um, an enormous factor in the disparate use of the death penalty in this country in in states that are big users like Texas or Mm -hmm. or Alabama, uh, Florida, and others. Um, And other states uh, like California, which have very large death rows, um, uh, but a moratorium Mm -hmm. now, Mm -hmm. of course, and better representation for the the folks who are um, sentenced to death. well, Bernard, Sorry. what is the what do you see as the outlook at this point? Obviously, it's encouraging that states like Colorado or New Mexico are taking a second look at uh, having the death penalty or getting rid of it. California is having a moratorium, but on the other hand, you have Texas, which is the uh, second largest state in the union by population, which seems to seem to have a strong preference to use the death penalty. What do you see as the the outlook 
for death penalty and justice as regards death penalty? Is it just the roll of the dice if you happen to live in a state where we have a moratorium or it's abolished? And on the other hand, you have the ill fortune of being in a state like Texas where where there's a strong willingness by the state to, to use the death penalty. What do you see as the, the outlook in this very checkered map of the United States as regards the death penalty? It's hard to know because it changes over time, but believe it or not, I mean, even in this uh, area, I mean, I, I was pretty confident in 2016 that we were on the road to abolition of the death penalty in this mm. country. Um, and I thought it I thought it was reflected in public opinion and and reflected in the decreasing number of states and and I would have I would have put my money on uh, the fact that we would join so many other mm-hmm. countries and abolish the death penalty. Today, it's much harder to know. I still do feel that there is a raising consciousness mm-hmm. across this country of the gross injustices in these cases uh, so often and you know the the most recent controversies over lethal injection and people surviving lethal injection uh i i think contribute to that uh there have been uh, there's been more and more awareness of the fact of innocent persons being sentenced to death mm-hmm. um of of wrongful convictions and so many pieces that people are becoming more familiar with uh, and problems with our mental health systems and the way that's reflected in kind of the lack of mental health care that can lead to some of these cases, etc. So I I keep on thinking that there is greater awareness Mm -hmm. uh, among the kind of American citizens, but there are these states Mm-hmm. where there seems to be this real attachment to a kind of an identity that is associated with the death penalty. And here I'm thinking, of course, of a state like Texas, yes. a state like Alabama, where where there really is an, an ethos that is associated with it. Now, mm-hmm. these things can change. And, and you've seen and, and we saw, for instance, Virginia. Right, abandon the death penalty, mm. abolish the death penalty, mm-hmm. which, which, uh, that was what is that? Two years ago or last year? And I, I never would have predicted that. I mean, mm-hmm. of all places, Virginia, yes. which had mm-hmm. one of the highest, it used to have the highest per capita d- death row mm. executions all the time. They saw the light. That they saw, they saw all the problems. They saw the racial discrimination. They saw, they saw the poverty discrimination involved in these cases, and ultimately. Um, they abolished the death penalty too. If you had told, if you had asked me, you know, 20 years ago, would Virginia ever get rid of the death penalty? I'd be, I, I would have said, well, no, I'm putting them with Texas and and some mm-hmm. other states. They'll never get rid of it, and yet they did. So it, it's it's hard to know. It's become such a a local uh, issue, mm-hmm. really, a, a local criminal justice issue, which we've seen and, and we've seen. We've seen other states, for instance, Georgia, where as a result of kind of investing in a statewide capital defender, basically they they're they're, they're practically no death penalty cases. They're new death penalty cases. When when you see all of that, you start 
imagining that the 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 path to abolition in this country may be different than the mm-hmm. one that we had expected in 2016 mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, you know it's not going to be maybe the united states supreme court saying that the death penalty per se is cruel and unusual but rather state by state localities local citizens community members uh, looking at it and really raising questions about it mm-hmm. and um and and um and bringing an end to it at that more localized level mm-hmm. well bernard in the yeah. remaining few minutes of the podcast do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners on this very complex and very emotive issue yeah no i i do i mean i think that it's it's really at the it's really at the local level and in one's own community uh, you know, state, region, that one has to learn about uh, the issues at stake um, uh, because they can be so idiosyncratic, um, different, different, they, they may raise different questions of uh, race and ethnicity in different uh, states. And so, so I would say, you know, I would say that the most important thing is to really to know what's going on around you to open one's ears and hearts to listen uh, to what's going on in these cases um, and to, and to learn about them. Because I think that, you know, when we do that uh, in this context of the death penalty Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been working at it for many years now, um, I think one learns and hears about things that, that are really shocking and that will change one's view about really the possibility of of humans administering this uh, this deadly mechanism. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Bernard Harcourt, for joining us today. And Bernard, how can our listeners you. follow you? I do have a, a Twitter account, which I've not been very, but but I do under the handle Bernard Harcourt, and I'm gonna going to go back there and start i had opened another i had opened a mastodon account to try and uh, (laughs) and uh you know diversify given what was unclear was going on with twitter at bernard harcourt at mastodon.green and i i do try to participate in this new uh, this new world of which you are of course such a big part out in san francisco (laughs) but yeah and then of course uh, i have my own website bernardharcourt.com bernardharcourt.com and the, the Twitter handle is at Bernard Harcourt. And the Mastodon account again is? At Bernard Harcourt at Mastodon.green. Very good. Yes. Well, Bernard, yes. we, we appreciate you joining us today. And once Thank again, you, look forward to having you back, hopefully in the April-May timeframe, to discuss your book. I would love to. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. And for our listeners... The San Francisco experience is coming up on its third anniversary. It's carried on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, among 19 platforms in total, with listeners in 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco experience with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco. 